0: Welcome to all who are here. My name is Beth. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which is strong and powerful and sharp like a two-edged sword. Lord, it is your word that really helps us to be able to um, see truth and to see truth not only in the world or in people around us, but truth in ourselves and where we have believed lives, and where we are learning your truth. And you have said that it takes your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to really um, do that renovation in our mind. And so, Lord, I pray that that might be the case as we look at um, Nehemiah and the things that he learns and the things that he does. Help us to likewise be those strong warriors of yours that... Um, Really put aside our personal comforts in the desire to be able to bring forth your kingdom, whatever it is that you've called us to do. Help us to be able to um, really have that kind of a focus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So um, just quick review. Last week we were looking at Nehemiah. Anybody remember what year this would be? It's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. 444, 445, so um, it's the 20th year, and so remember we're moving towards zero, not away from zero, for those that are trying to do the math in their heads, and uh, King Artaxerxes is the king, he's the son of Xerxes, who was the king in Esther's day, and now we have his son. And uh, his son was actually also the king that was the king that's talked about in Ezra. And Ezra is split into two parts, and one part is when the temple has being rebuilt, and then the second part of Ezra is when he participates. He's really a contemporary of Nehemiah many years later, like 70, 80, 90 years later. And that's the second part of Ezra. And so that's the timing of Nehemiah. So it's a timing where the Babylonian captivity is over with. The 70 years they went back, they're no longer in captivity. So if they're living in the kingdom of Babylon, maybe, or more likely Persia, which is where Nehemiah is. He's in the capital in Susa in Persia, which is the world empire at the time. So, if um, so, some of them are living there, but they're living there in uh, the Jews are living there in relative safety at this point because we've been through the days of Esther, where Esther really stood up as one of uh, God's instruments to keep the Jews from being um, well more than discriminated against, but killed really. And so Nehemiah is now the cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer is the one who tastes the wine for sure, some say also the food, before it goes to the king, always checking for poisons. So it's um, not just a a risky job if somebody decides to poison the king, but also it's a job that shows a lot of trust that the king has for Nehemiah. And not only that, it means that Nehemiah is there every mealtime. And we know what it's like to be together every mealtime. You start to grow and you have um, a level of intimacy that you don't have with just anybody in your in your life. And so uh, Nehemiah is in that trusted position. And um, last time in chapter 1, Nehemiah was... Um, in great distress because he had heard a report that his brother brought back. So his brother Hanani came back. He went to Jerusalem, which is like quite the journey, several months' journey. He came back, and Nehemiah said, tell me how it goes for Jerusalem. And Hanani said, they are in great distress, for the walls are broken down, and basically it's a rubble heap. So the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, but the rest is still a rubbable. So, that was my little joke. Thank you. <laughs> so, it's still a big mess. And what it means, when the walls are broken down, what this means is that that city is in disgrace. So, any passerby, because everybody, they don't fly, they go by by the King's Highway, which goes right by um, Jerusalem and Israel. And they look and they say, Huh? That's not much of a city. They don't have much of a people there. They're not very strong. And it's, it's a huge disgrace. But it's not just Jerusalem. Remember I have said many times, Jerusalem is the only city in the world, in history, throughout all the generations, where God has placed his name. And so for Jerusalem to be in a rubble heap is disgraceful for the name of God. And this is what really hits home with Nehemiah, is is this whole problem that Jerusalem really represents God to the world, and it's a mess. So Nehemiah, um, we saw last time he went and he prayed to God Most High. And I got a feeling that his prayer went like this, because we're going to see some amazing changes from Nehemiah. So I'm reading from um, Psalm 77, verses 7 to 15. And uh, this is actually a a psalm of Asaph, who, um, uh, it's not a David psalm. And so Asaph is still um, mourning over the the destruction that um, has happened over these years. And uh, listen to what he says and how he changes as he moves through. Will the Lord reject forever? Because remember, Jerusalem means that the Lord has rejected Israel. And so that would be how they felt. Now, the Lord hasn't rejected Israel, but this would be how they feel. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Maybe sometimes you feel like that where you feel like you've been rejected by God or he's forgotten you and you're going through a trouble and um, it feels like he doesn't love you. You're not the only one to have felt that way. Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, this is quite key, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. In other words, it's his feelings that have changed his view of God. God has not changed. It's what's going on in his heart that he feels that way. It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. This is key to who Nehemiah is, and it's key to us. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old, I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds, like I'm going to think about them, I'm going to contemplate them. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great, like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph." And so what, this, uh, what Asaph has said here, the psalmist has said, is that it's, it's where I'm at, where my feelings are, that is making me see God this way. And so then he remembered what God has done. And for us, that's really remembering his covenant. What did Jesus say to us? He said he gave us a new commandment. He said that he put his spirit within us. He said that he's given all power to us. And as we act in his will, then all things will be accorded to us. And so um, this is the kind of thing that he's remembering. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great, like our God. Like that's come a long ways from just a few sentences before that. And so we see um, this um, is happening with Nehemiah. So I have a feeling that that's the kind of thing that Nehemiah is praying as he um, prays in chapter 1. So then, in cha- so now, chapter, four, or chapter 2, it's four months later. And it came about in the month Nisan. Remember the other one was the month Chislev. So now the month Nisan is four months later. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, and if you know the Jewish calendar, you know that the month of Nisan is Passover. And Passover is a time of remembrance. What do they remember? Coming out of Egypt. That's what they're remembering coming out of slavery. And so they're coming out of Egypt, out of slavery, and remembering that every Passover, the Lord says, I'm going to institute this Passover time, the sacrifice, the meal. Um, the cleaning out of all the leaven in the house and in the camp. He says, I want you to remember every year what I have done for you. This is actually very key for us in remembering God's goodness, is to remember the slavery that he has brought you out of. All of us have been enslaved, either enslaved to our own passions and our own lust, or enslaved to lies that we have been told that have driven us down and enslaved us or maybe things have happened to us circumstances or maybe it's just something that um, we've devised in our own mind there's all kinds of ways to be enslaved but the Lord has released us from that slavery now some may still be working out of that slavery but the Lord says remember I have brought you out of slavery and so that's what Passover is about. That's what, and communion is really th- our, our modern day um understanding of remembering what we have been brought out of, the slavery that we've been brought out of. And so he's uh, had all this time, four months that he's praying. He hasn't done anything yet. He's been praying. And that is the pray, wait, which I think is the hardest part of our walk of faith, is waiting. And watch. So we're not just waiting, lolling around, thinking about other things. We're watching. So there's this purposefulness in our waiting. And then when the Lord says, then we go. When He says, move, we go. So that's really what Nehemiah's been doing. So it's the fourth month um, after his first hearing of what happened. And um, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, remember, he's mourning and fasting. Like, he's um, mourning enough that he's actually fasting over these four months. But before the king, you know, it's all all cheerful before the king. All happy. All, you know, unicorns and, and things like that. And he's managed to keep his countenance in a way that the king hasn't noticed this. But on this day the king notices. Now who did that? That's God. Because I've got a feeling Nehemiah is trying very hard every day to be the same Nehemiah that he's always been. And this day, the king notices. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? Like, you don't have a good reason to be sad. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And That's what we're like, is that fear. We all have fear. And the big thing that um, the Lord is wanting to teach us is to move from that place of fear to the place of faith. And I think fear comes out of our amazing imagination that does all the what-ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if the king sees me sad and it's off with my head? What if, what if, what if? What if things don't work out right? What if? And that's, that's our fear that brings all these what ifs to the forefront. And we think of all the worst scenarios. And moving to faith, it's saying, what if God? What if God does this? So he's thinking, what if the king's reaction is to get rid of me somehow? what if he puts me to death because i haven't stayed happy or what if all the the king is unhappy with me when i say anything like what if he's not in favor of jerusalem being rebuilt because remember jerusalem already there was an attempt to rebuild it that was squashed in the days of king artaxerxes it was actually in the 7th month of his reign or 7th year of his reign and so already he squashed that effort because he was told they are rebellious, they'll rebel. And so he says, really? And then he looks in his chronicles, oh yeah, right, King Zedekiah, he did rebel. So yeah, stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And now 13 years later, Nehemiah is wondering, what's going to happen if I tell the same king the same thing as we already told him? And he already put an end to it. And so um, his fear is actually a legitimate fear in the sense that it's got some concrete foundation to it. But the Lord is saying, but what if God, as the psalm says, you know, the, the heart of the king is like channels of, of water in the Lord's hand, and he directs it wherever he wishes. So what if God directs King Artaxerxes' his heart moving from fear? to faith and that's really what god is calling us to do nehemiah does not know the outcome we know because we have the scriptures but nehemiah doesn't know it are you in a situation right now that is fearful and you have no idea what the outcome is going to be but what if god intervenes that's where our focus is that's faith is what if God. And so we watch um, Nehemiah as he sees that what if of God. Um, And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? You notice he doesn't say Jerusalem he says um, what's on his heart, how this is affecting him. He starts with the personal relationship that he has with Nehemiah. So even though he's trusting God, he also is being wise. Like Jesus told us, be wise. And so he's also exercising wisdom. So he's talking heart to heart with this king. And he calls it the city where my father's tombs are, or where my dad's buried. I I'm distressed because it's, um desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire so everything that gives the city strength and nobility is destroyed now the king answers in a very interesting way the king said to me what would you request in other words how can i help how can i help not what jerusalem not again jerusalem or not what no way you're here, you're my cupbearer, I don't care about Jerusalem, it's a long ways away, and that's an old history. Who cares? That happened a long time ago. None of that. He says, how can I help you? So you can see how his fear has moved to faith, has moved to action. So now he's got to think, how can he help me? Because he's ha- he's got to have a plan in place. He's on the spot now. Four months he's been praying. And for four months, I think God has been working in his heart, helping him to think through what it is he's going to need to do this job. So I prayed to the God of heaven and it's like one of those prayers that Pastor John was talking about last week where you're praying here and you're talking here and I've got a feeling a lot of us do that and that's what's happening with Nehemiah. So he prays to God and he says to the king if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Now I'm not sure that this is Nehemiah's skill set but he's taking on the job. And sometimes we're moved outside of what is really what we think of as our skill set, and who knows how amazing God will use us. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, so in other words, Nehemiah had to not only convince the king, but the queen too. He had two people, two powerful people in front of him. How long will your journey be, and when will you return? I just think this speaks so well of Nehemiah. The king wants him back. He's not willing for Nehemiah to go permanently. But for a while, yes. So how long will you be gone? Because we're going to miss you. We want you back. So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. None of that, well, we'll see what the Lord does. He gave him a definite time because he's already been praying. The Lord has already showed him what needs to happen, And Nehemiah has it already organized in his head. And so he gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, because he's thought this through, he's got another problem, safe passage. Getting there, remember, it's a four-month journey. And there's a lot of marauders on the way. And not only that, he's a Jew. And the Jews have never been a popular people. I don't know if you knew that. But they have never been a popular people. So if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river. So the river here is the Euphrates River. So when he crosses over the Euphrates, there's all these provinces that are run by Persia. And he's asking for safe passage through those provinces by having a letter from the king himself. That they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, this is a different Asaph than the one who wrote the Psalms. A letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates. So he's got more than this issue. He's got safe passage. And so what if God gives him clearance clearance letters through the king? He's got that. And the next one is resources. The how. How am I going to do this? And so he says, Asaph the keeper of the forest, and that's probably the forest of Lebanon, actually, the keeper of the forest, um, the king's forest, that he would give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, need beams for that, and for the house to which I will go. And then he needs an awful lot of rocks, and oh boy, he needs a lot of materials. So the king granted them to me because, and here it is, The good hand of my God was on me. That is a repeated phrase in Ezra and Nehemiah. The good hand of God is upon me. Did you know that the good hand of God is upon you? God's hand is not against you if you are a follower of his. His good hand is upon you. And even though our circumstances may look like the Jerusalem walls all in a rubble heap, God's good hand is on you. And he is doing a building in your life that is going to give glory and honor to his name. That's what he's doing. It's not about you. It's about how you are being able to participate in bringing glory to his name. And so um, the good hand of God was on Nehemiah. because um, And he says in the Hebrew, he uses the name Elohim. So that's God's... like huge almighty powerful name that he um, that's the name we use for creator God that God almighty his good hand is upon me there is nothing outside of God's sovereignty there is no enemy we have there is no circumstance we have that we can be in there is no thoughts in our background and that's influencing our mind there is nothing outside of the sovereignty of God nothing and he is an all powerful God and he loves you, and he's got his good hand on you, and he can do something about your situation. So, um, then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, as he's making his way, and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, so he has a pretty big entourage that's with him. And it's interesting what happens later in this chapter. Keep in mind, he's got an entourage from the king himself. So in other words, the king is endorsing whatever Nehemiah does. And everybody else has got to make way because the king in their world is all-powerful. And when Sanballat, so now he's gotten to Judah, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now I just need to take a minute to say who Sanballat and Tobiah are. Um, Sanballat is actually a Samaritan and um, it's understood in history that he actually was the one who rebuilt the temple in, or built a temple in Samaria that duplicated the real temple in Jerusalem and that's why the Samaritan said well on Mount Garrison that's where we worship in Jesus' day and um, you know Jesus said the day will come when we will worship in truth and spirit and it won't be on one of these mountains but um, so Sanballat really is against Israel although he's in Israel but it's kind of like they've um, they're all dwelling together and but not in harmony and it's like an occupation of Israel. And so Sanballat's not at all happy about this, and neither is Tobiah, the Ammonite, because to rebuild Jerusalem will make Jerusalem strong, and Samaria won't have the, the power over Jerusalem that it's had. And Tobiah is actually from Ammon. He's um, Ammon is... Uh, enemies of Israel on the other side of the Jordan and so Tobiah it's understood in history that he actually um, was governor of all these provinces all the way from the area of Ammon which is east of the Jordan in the lands of the um, Arabs all the way down to Egypt that was Tobiah's sort of stronghold now, he's under King Artaxerxes, but he's he's got that kind of um, governance. And so these two men are not at all happy. Now, there's something else about these two men. Both of them are related to the high priest of Israel through marriage, both of them. And so not only do they have all this political power, they also have religious power because they're in the high priest family. So when they heard it, they were displeased. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I always love those three days in Scripture. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I love that. He says, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. So he didn't tell anybody anything. He didn't pull his whole entourage together and go around in the daytime and say, we're going to fix all this. He and a couple of men snuck out in the middle of the night to inspect the walls. And they didn't tell anybody, and Nehemiah kept it to himself. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding, so no grand show at all. The project in Nehemiah's mind is not his, it's God's project. Do you think of your life that way? Is it all your life? It's about what you're doing? It's about your credentials? It's about your achievements? Or is it about what God is doing through you? That actually is everlasting, what God does through you. What we do for ourselves, it's not. But what God does is is huge in our lives. So I went out at night by the valley gate, so that's down in the south part of Jerusalem, in the direction of the Dragon's Well and onto the Refuse Gate. That would be um, the Valley of Hinnom, or what later became known as Gehenna, um, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the Fountain Gate. So all of these are gates for different purposes. So he's moving around now to the eastern walls of Jerusalem. And if you know anything about the terrain of Jerusalem, you know that it falls off into a ravine there into the Kidron Valley. And the king's pool, which is probably Hezekiah's um, pool of Siloam. But there was no place for my mount to pass. So the animal he's on, probably a donkey, couldn't get through there. And so the um, terrain is so rough east of the city that he can't get around there. So I went up at night by the ravine, basically on foot, and inspected the wall then I entered the valley gate again and returned. So he came back. So he couldn't get actually all around Jerusalem because of all the rubble and the steepness of the terrain and the difficulty. So he came back and he went in the way that he went out at the valley gate. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials or the rest who did the work. So in other words there's going to be others involved but he didn't tell anybody. So what we see is that he's got a very discouraging problem. He's gone and he's checked out the walls now. Now, th- these are not sort of, it's, when I think of you know rubble around our house, we're talking about maybe at the most these little bricks and things. We're not talking about our whole house being a rubble heap on the ground and now I'm going to, you know with my own two hands, fix it all up. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the walls of Jerusalem that were many, many, many feet thick. And they're all down off of... Because when um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came back the third time, he was so sick of Jerusalem rebelling, he just leveled everything. He erased, basically, as much as he could, Jerusalem. And so he tore down all those massive walls that were around Jerusalem. So it's a huge rubble heap. And although... um, Uh, Zerubbabel has come back and rebuilt the temple. The rest is not, and it's a mess, and it's very discouraging when we look at a mess. Sometimes we look at our lives and we say, it's a mess. I cannot do anything about this. My life is like I'm so discouraged. Nothing I do seems to turn out right. It's all so destroyed There is no way it could ever be rebuilt. But the Lord is saying that he is in it. And Nehemiah, instead of being discouraged, instead of saying, what if I can never get these stones lifted up? How am I supposed to do this? I'm one man and I've got a few men with me, but this is way beyond a few. How in the world are we ever going to do this? And already the people of Jerusalem, they haven't done anything, so they're not that interested in helping out, it would seem. How is this going to change? And he could have been so discouraged as to go back. He's got a great job back in Susa. He could any day go back, and the king there would gladly have him back. He does not have to do this, except the Lord has put it on his heart. And Nehemiah is a faithful man. What has the Lord put on your heart? What has the Lord put on your heart that he wants to rebuild in your life? And will he find you faithful and willing to do the hard work that he's calling you to in order to do that rebuilding, but not by your strength, but by his power, by the power of his Holy Spirit? That will be a great work. Then I said to them, this is all those nobles and things that I just listed, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, he says to all of them, to the nobles, to the priests, to the families, to the family heads, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a a reproach. And I told them how... The hand of my God had been favorable to me. How the good hand of the Lord was on me. I told them what had happened so far. I told them about the king. I told them about my job with the king. That was a, a God thing, that I even had that job. That the king, I had the king's ear. That the king actually was favorable. That I had the letters of passage. That he said that we could use anything from the forest that Asaph takes care of. We have all the resources. We have the king's resources at our disposal. Like, this is God's good hand. This isn't about the king. This is about the king, the king of kings. And he has given us favor. And so he told them as a word of encouragement to them and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, now they have been sitting down. I'm not filling in that blank. They have been sitting down, not doing anything. They have spent a lot of time rebuilding their homes. They did do the temple way back when, but even then, it took a lot to keep them at it. It was done in three stages before it finally got done. They don't really care. And yet, the words of Nehemiah is moving them to care. Our words, our attitudes, our encouragement, and as Janice puts it, our cheerleading does make a difference. And we need to do that for one another because sometimes discouragement does get us down. So if you have a word of encouragement for somebody, give it to them. They need to hear it. And I have a feeling, like uh, Chuck Swindoll said one time in one of his sermons, he said, encouragement is the most liberally given gift in the body of Christ, but the littlest used. So let's really encourage one another to the good um, work of God because his hand is on us. And they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. This is a miracle to motivate these people to work. And um, Nehemiah, he saw the disgrace of the city, and he, he really helped the people to see, this isn't just a broken down wall. This is about God's name, because he has put his name in Jerusalem. And here we are, going about our lives, not caring a thing about God's name. And we are called to build these walls up again. And they said, yeah, we're in, we're in. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem, so now we have Geshem the Arab, and Geshem is a very, very influential um, figure, when they heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now we can say, well, obviously not. The king was behind him. But don't forget that the king had already sent back an entourage a long time ago and said you can do this. And then those same kind of guys had sent a letter to Artaxerxes and said, look in your history books, this is a rebellious people. If they rebuild Jerusalem, they will not bow down to Persia anymore. And he had believed that and he had stopped the work. And now Nehemiah is there. So when they say this, You know, what are you trying to do? You're rebelling against the king. What they're really doing is they're accusing Nehemiah of treason. And that's a capital offense. And it's very possible that Artaxerxes could actually believe that. But look at his response. Instead of saying, well, you know, I've got this letter from King Artaxerxes, and he said I could do this. And he knows all about this. He doesn't say that. He says to them, the God of heaven will give us success the god of heaven will give us success like yeah the king is in his place but he's put there by god himself the god of heaven and he uses the term el el yon which means the god over all gods the god above all gods so you can have your moon god Sanballat, which is what he's named after or your um the child sacrifice god that Ammon would have, the, the, the Tobiah the Ammonite. So he says, You can have whatever gods you have, but I serve the God that is above all gods. I serve the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and he has given us favor. He will give us success. Therefore we, his servants, God's servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, no right and no memorial in Jerusalem. And I just want to tell you, um, talk about what that means. So sometimes, I think this is the worst kind, people resistance. We have circumstances, we have um, troubles, we have trials that we go through, but the worst ones are when people rise up against us. Those are the ones that seem to really hit our heart. And quite often, it's either people who do have power over us Or people in, um, like in authority, or people who have power in our lives because of our relationship with them. Or people, even worse, I think, here in the family of God. And sometimes we get opposition from the place we least expect it. But in their case, these people, they're just going to remain a thorn in his side because. This isn't the end of hearing about Tobiah and Sambalat and Geshem. However, he does have, Nehemiah says to them, you don't have any portion, you don't have any right, and you don't have any memorial. So portion, he's talking about the tribal portions. That's what they were called. So your portion is your tribal area that you're given, and each tribe had its own family area. And if you married somebody outside of your tribe, If it was a woman, you went and you became part of the tribe of your husband. So you didn't lose this land. The tribal lands stayed in the borders that God had originally prescribed for Joshua. So those were the tribal areas. And that was the portion that was given to each family within each of those tribes. So he says, you guys don't have any portion, i.e., you're not from Israel. You're not Jews. And this is God's land. And you don't have any portion in it, nor do you have any right. So the portion is the history. You don't have any right, which is today. Today, in Nehemiah's day, he says, you don't have any right to this land because King Artaxerxes has given us the right to rebuild. So you don't stand on any legal rights either. You have no right to stop us. And the third one, no memorial, which I think of as future. So in the future, when the generations come and they go and they remember back to the days of Nehemiah, Tobiah and Sanballat in Geshem, you will have no memorial in Jerusalem. You will not be remembered for doing anything good in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is someday Zion. Someday the Lord is coming back, and he says that he is returning to Zion. He is returning to Jerusalem, and the memorial will not be there of God's enemies. That will be gone. And so really what he's saying is, you have nothing here, you guys. And so um, we see this Nehemiah. He just so understands what God is doing in his day. Do you understand what God is doing in your day? He does give understanding to his servants. It says that he tells secrets to his servants. Are you really one of his servants? Do you spend time praying, waiting, and watching? And have you been faithful in going when God has said, Go? Maybe you know there's something God's telling you right now that you need to go and do. Do not delay. Because once you do that, there's going to be a new assignment. And each time we do what God is calling us to do, it expands and it has bigger impact. Do you want to be significant in your life? Then do what God is calling you to do. And it will be different for each of us, but they will all fit together for building the kingdom of God. And it will be about God's name. And his name will be glorified if you do what he's calling you to do. I think that's really encouraging. And we're only in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah has a lot for us to be learning. So um, pray, watch and wait, and then go. And remember that God's good hand is upon you, his servant Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your good hand being upon us, your servants. And we pray that we would really come to you. And um, when we face these trials, that we would just bring those trials to you and wait and watch to see what you're saying to us and where you are directing us. And when we learn this, even if it's four months later, help us to move, to go to do what you have called us to. And we thank you that you have not forgotten us, that we are not um, in this mess without you having knowledge of where we are, and that you will move us forward as we move forward in faith, not in fear, but in faith in you. And we thank you for Jesus' strong name that we can run into that tower of strength that is a refuge for us, So I pray that you would be with us now as we go forth. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Amen.